Hello and welcome to Dairy Dialogue podcast number 69. And it still seems a bit odd doing this on a Wednesday. Of course, you can listen whenever you want to, maybe even twice. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and on this week's show we have four guests. A regular look at the global dairy markets, a recap of some of the news you may have missed since the last podcast, and news of a Dairy Reporter webinar that's coming up next month. Our guests on this week's Dairy Dialogue are Tom Bailey, Senior Dairy Analyst at Rabobank, Andrew Spicer, CEO of Algenuity, Stefania Bertone from Fructital in Italy, Robert Chesler, Executive Director of Global Dairy and Food Groups at INTLFC Stone, and Charlie Highland, also from INTLFC Stone, gives us a roundup of the global dairy markets. As for the week, well, weird weather in the UK, lots of storms, snow in some areas and flooding in others. This week I was still putting together my trip to the Netherlands next month, and I've already got about half a dozen interviews hooked up, tracking down the ones who have ignored me so far, and in preparation I even bought a big rucksack or knapsack so I don't have to lug a suitcase around the country. Whether it will prove to be any better, I don't know. I might not be able to even lift it. Of course, before that I'm headed to the Salon de l'Agriculture and the Salon du Fromage in Paris, and that's only 10 days away, which means next week I'll be producing two podcasts, or at least trying to. We also have a webinar to announce. On March the 12th, we will be having a live webinar on the drive for sustainable and environmentally friendly dairy products. And we will have guests from Friesland Campina Ingredients, Amcor, and the International Dairy Federation. It will essentially be like the podcast, only live, so you'll hear me mess up even more. And if you register, which you can do on dairyreporter.com, you'll also be able to ask questions live as well, some of which we might even get to. The reality of these things is, in an hour, it seems like it's going to be a really long time, but it actually isn't. And so if you leave 15 minutes for questions at the end, you might answer three or four maximum. It's all about trying to get the balance right while someone from our production team talks to me and reminds me how much time we have left. I think the first time that ever happened was when I was doing live ice hockey commentary and they tell you in your earpiece things like how long to commercial. And at first it's a bit off-putting because all you can do is listen to them counting down and you forget to talk. Maybe that's a good thing. So please go ahead and register and join us on March the 12th. The time depends on where you are, of course. It's 3pm in the UK, 4pm in Western Europe, and 11am in Upper Muscadobit, Nova Scotia. And it'll be 7 in the morning if you happen to be in the wonderfully named Zizix, California. Although why you'd be listening from the desert is another question. Other time zones are available, of course, some of which will be more conducive to listening to the webinar than others. So we've talked about the webinar, which I'll probably be doing ad nauseum until it actually happens. I had some issues with one of my computers this week and lost a whole lot of video. I have no idea why one of my computers dislikes me so much. It took me four hours to edit some video, seven hours talking to Apple tech support, and now another four hours to edit them again because their solution didn't work. Well, it actually did work, but I lost everything in the process. So let's move on to something a little less depressing, and we'll talk about the news instead, although the actual news is probably pretty depressing as well. So since the last podcast, we've had an article on U.S. dairy groups pressing Congress on the Dairy Pride Act and on whether CBD has a place in the dairy sector. 
Connected to that, we actually ran a story on the California Milk Advisory Board promoting what it calls CBD, which is California-based dairy, to try and have some fun with the whole CBD debate, or perhaps capitalize on it. Maxim issued its February Dairy Commodities Update, and North Carolina has digitized environmental monitoring for dairy processors. One of my favorite place names is in North Carolina, and that's Bat Cave in the absolutely gorgeous Smoky Mountains area. I have a musician friend who moved there, and he says he never grows tired of saying, To the Bat Cave! Canadian dairy company Saputo issued its third quarter financials with revenues up, but two plants to close in Trenton, Ontario, and St. John, New Brunswick. Dolav is introducing new products at FoodX 2020, and the lineup of speakers has been announced for the 9th International Way Conference in Dublin in September. Some big companies involved in that one, as well as top-notch research centres. All those stories and many more on DairyReporter.com, which brings us neatly, or not that neatly really, into our interviews for the week. Recently, our roving reporter Beth Newhart was at the Winter Fancy Food Show and then headed to the International Dairy Foods Association Forum in Arizona. And from that event this week, we have two guests, the first of whom is Tom Bailey, Senior Dairy Analyst at Rabobank. Generally, the market looks very strong right now from a pricing standpoint. We have uh, enough pressure, whether environmental um, or debt levels, globally to, to limit new supply coming online, um, particularly in the EU and in New Zealand. And then, of course, you have the impacts from the rush bushfires in Australia, uh, which is resulting in some product moving from New Zealand to Australia, uh, creating a little deficit over there. There's um, kind of, like I said, limit, limited new milk for the market to enjoy. So demand continues to look pretty strong globally. So where's the milk going to come from? Who's going to supply it? What does that mean? Um, in short, yeah, we see firm pricing um, to even more upside in pricing at this point in time. Uh, it also is kind of a, a continuation of the era of the U.S. becoming a big player in the export market because we're going to be one of the few markets. This will be the first time uh, where we are the largest contributor to new milk available for trade. Um, so it's, it's, it's a kind of a, yeah, I guess a, an era for change in the U.S. also. Um, and it goes well with the Phase 1 um, agreement and then the USMCA being signed. USMCA maybe not having the, the, the volume impact that we would have expected, uh, but Phase 1 in China looks very promising from an uh, export standpoint. And it is, you know, China is a absolutely massive market. The, for context, the... Chinese fluid milk market is a $19 billion market versus the U.S.'s $12 billion market. Um, and if they're leveling the playing field for us to, to have a, a, a piece of that market and an opportunity in that market, it's it's significant for us. Now, phase one uh, lumps dairy into what is called other ag commodities, and we are a sliver of those other ag commodities. Um, but the volumes that are we're going to have to hit if we are to, to hit those targets, will demand a lot from from our from dairy. Um, it's you know in the, the key areas where I think there's there's potential is going to be in fluid milk, um, infant formula. I mean the high value because it's measured in value. So the high value uh, products 
Um, of course, we could see more whey going in, and we could see more powders going in. Um, but I think what what it, where it becomes interesting is in that, um, I guess, value that is finished good categories. And China is making you know a concerted concerted effort to import more finished goods rather than just buying in base commodities. They want to buy in more finished goods. So it's yeah, it all kind of lines up pretty well. So um, a, a good position for us in, in, the, in the coming years. Hopefully it happens, you know, it's, there's a lot of uncertainty still, right. um, but where we are now looks pretty healthy. It seems like dairy organizations, dairy farmers are excited about these new trade deals and yeah. they consider them like a positive step forward, but they're not enough, right? They, 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 yeah. We still need more. I guess enough is a, is a loose term, I sure. guess it comes down to. What do we mean by what do we mean by enough? Yeah. And incremental growth, I would say, is is a good step. Um, it's not it's not you know 20, 2008 when New Zealand had to send you know huge bulk powder uh, exports to China because of the melamine crisis. Um, but it, it's it's I guess a step in the right direction in a, in a like I said significant and growing market. When we ourselves are, are facing declining fluid milk sales, Chinese fluid milk sales are not only significantly larger than the U.S., but growing at 7% CAGR versus the U.S. declining at 1% CAGR. So yeah, it's not an immediate change of, of the fundamentals as we know it, but with trade negotiations and deals like this, it never is. It's always a long, slow game. Um, and I would say it's more promising than um, what we did see from USMCA uh, for us. It's the, it's the market we want to be more engaged in, and it's the right direction for it. So. What do you see for 2020? Um, you know, will there be furthering in the the China deal? Um, will USMCA actually be implemented? Um, there's talks that we might be going through a recession. Yeah. What, you know, what do you expect on that front? So, uh, starting with the recession, it, so we we were forecasting a recession in, in 2020. It's still on the cards. The probability has is now down. It's not something I'm forecasting, but the bank uh, Rabo is. We do have a team of uh, economic analysts that are looking at it and um, they're still concerned uh, in the later part of 2020 um, but obviously things like the trade deal it, with China and, and geopolitical tensions all play a factor um, so we'll wait and see on that but in the next uh, 18 months I'd say it's still in the higher probabilities of our, of our of what we're anticipating I think you know this is I guess more my my opinion than anything there will be a wait and see approach with the election because um, if China could push back on it um, they probably would if, if that opportunity is, is given to them um, and I think that any any uh, you know if, if Democratic we see if we see kind of a, a shift to the Democrats they would probably try to unwind it also um, so that's a big uncertainty um, it'll be obviously pushed by by President Trump and his team um, they're very aggressive on it. It's something that they want. So, assuming that that's status quo, let's let's say phase two could very well be um, fast behind it. Uh, as far as USMCA, I think that we'll be seeing yeah the trade flows from that. The other the other you know outside of the U.S. is what's interesting. A lot of our competing markets are you know inking deals. The Europeans are all over it, getting into markets that we want to we want to be in and, and are in. Um, so there's there's competition from from that side of things, but back to the real point, it comes to who has the new milk, and we have the new milk 2020, so we'll be the ones that are getting the you know some doors open for us.
We may as well stay in Arizona now, not just because it's warmer, but for another interview from the forum, and that is with Robert Chesler, Executive Director of Global Dairy and Food Groups at INTLFC Stone. I'm sure I've heard of them before. Uh, I think we've seen quite a bit of run and a reversal of recent trends. So, you know, we've seen fat prices pull back quite a bit. And we probably have seen a lot of that butter price hit. So I don't know that we have a lot more room to go down in in the short term. Um, We've seen powder prices reverse and higher significantly. And so class four is relatively stable as a result of that flip-flop, if you would. So I think we've kind of, in the short term, run the course on that a bit. Mm-hmm. I'd be surprised to see immediate continuation of significance in that. Mm-hmm. We might later in the year, but it seems like we could slow in that directional movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a huge spread in the block barrel cheese price, and I think we need to focus on correcting that as an industry a little bit. I don't really think that 40 cents is sustainable. Uh, is barrel price going to move up to catch the block? I think more likely. But I think that's a big debate to be discussed here um, over the next few days. I think it's a great way to connect with people from all over the country and a few from outside the country as well. So it's it's a great uh, way to discuss markets and learn what different people are hearing and seeing and thinking and reconcile what we already had and then sit back down with our scratch paper, our model realistically, uh, and make sure that we're still in line with our foresight of the, uh, the markets and the opinions that, that we had coming into it or something we've learned has changed it. That's the first. Uh, secondarily, it's a great way to continue to network and let people know what we're doing for the industry and how we're continuing to sculpt it, what new products we're bringing uh, as a result of our partnerships with the industry, uh, and how we're blazing the trail forward to create, innovate, uh, to make a difference from a rice, price risk management standpoint. What is your opinion on all of the trade talk? Obviously, expecting like the prices. How familiar with it are you? Well, trade is obviously a very impactful factor. There's a lot of things that go into it, the political relationship, the currencies, the interest rates that affect the currencies, and I think that's all up for grabs in an election year. So it's anyone's best guess what's going to happen with the next presidential tweet, and I think that's why everyone is so glued to the, the seats of their chairs. Uh, it looks like we've got some confidence in phase one of this China trade deal, but I really don't think we can have full confidence at this juncture. I think the, the president needs to have a lot of things in his back pocket that he could pull out to play for his campaign advantage. Uh, We saw him going into uh, his defense uh, impeachment trial on Saturday, and what was his core complaint that he was tweeting about? How it was unfair that his defense team was starting on a Saturday, which was a ratings killer for TV. So you don't need any more confirmation that he's playing to the crowd, and I think he's going to continue doing that for the bulk of this year, which means we have very little confidence in today, let alone tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, we covered the phase one deal with China, and the general consensus among dairies seems to be, this is a good step, this is a positive step forward, but it's not enough. So, would you agree with that? I agree with that completely, and I think there's also a very different definition between what a contract is in English and in Chinese. Um, in our society, a contract is the terms under which we are going to operate and proceed with going forward. In China, a contract is an agreement to start doing business knowing that it's going to constantly change and evolve. So we're looking for details from a country that tries not to give them number one, and we're being led by an administration that I don't think wants to dot every I and cross every T because they need maneuverability heading into an election. What are the biggest challenges and opportunities in U.S. dairy this So challenges, obviously, I think, is, is trade, as you pointed out, is, is a key thing that's going to continue to be for the entire year. Uh, I think 
price risk stability is going to be very volatile and very hard to come by. And I think people are really going to be challenged to stick to and adhere to consistency and plans that they put in place uh, and try to stay off the emotional roller coaster. We've had fairly good price stability for the bulk of the last three years, and we, we broke that in the latter part of 2019, and I think that will continue in 2020. Uh, and everything political is really up for grabs right now. So how would you compare and contrast the U.S. and the EU in terms of the dairy outlook? Are we facing more trade struggles than Europe, similar things that are affecting dairy over there? The, the Europe-U.S. Uh, competition for exports is, is there and real. In the long term, I think the things that we are, are doing and the relationships that we're changing in NAFTA and Mexico, we're going to see a long-term impact, but it's not going to be abrupt in the short term. In the short term, we're still sensitive to things like currency valuation and prices back at home, and so it's a very difficult challenge for the hand-to-mouth order flow every day, every week, every month. Uh, and that's going to continue on the highly exportable products like skim milk powder, not that dry milk, that sort of thing. Um, the long-term course is where we have the ability to sculpt the direction as a nation with our trade agreements. And we've taken a step back over the last year or two, and we've seen long-term customers, I'll reiterate again, Mexico, and they've facilitated longer-term agreements with other countries because they're concerned about our stability and they want to open doors to other people. Those will leak slowly. They're not going to open like floodgates. We're not going to see any uh, short-term destruction, but we're going to see that constant slow erosion and just threat and price sensitivity continue to heighten. And I think that leads to consumers also being a bit more short-term uh, and buying more hand-to-mouth or one-quarter and maybe challenges them a little bit on getting early prices out of the United States. Now we head to Italy again for an interview with Fructital. It's a company that I interviewed at SIGEP, but for some reason the computer gods, if there is such a thing, decided to delete it. Fortunately, Stefania Bertone from the sales team at Fructital didn't laugh at my incompetence too much, or at least not while we were talking, and we chatted on the phone instead, so it was an opportunity to see how it all went. Of course, if you're not familiar with the company, we'll first have a bit of background. So, uh, Fructital is a company uh, near Turin, uh, in the north of Italy. We produce the ingredients for uh, the ice cream. Uh, we we are uh, improving uh, in uh, Vegas and Sivia line. So, uh, it is uh, um, a line for uh, ice cream without sugar and uh, also vegan. At the moment, there is a lot of people that want the, the ice cream, but healthy. And so we thought uh, about this, uh, this line that is uh, healthy, uh, but it's still uh, good. So uh, we have a good uh, ice cream with uh, healthy ingredients. And what do you supply to the gelato makers? Do you supply the, the whole thing, the, the mix, or just, just like the, the base that they then make the ice cream from? Yes, we produce the, the base, uh, the basis, and also uh, other supplements for the ice cream. Um, we produce cream to decorate ice cream and also to make gelato with that is more creamy than the traditional gelato. We have pastes to flavor the basis. Uh, we have um, products that are um, uh, easy to use. There are 
the powders and that uh, only adding uh, water or milk uh, you can uh, make gelato. We have uh, ripples, uh, toppings, um, a lot of ingredients uh, to do the, the ice cream. You also, I guess you can help companies that make the gelato, you can help with recipes and, and how to make them. Yes, we we can um, help uh, our customers, uh, giving uh, them uh, uh, a technician, a technical uh, help, or we can uh, go in uh, their company and suggest uh, them uh, something uh, like uh, how to do ice cream or uh, uh, where to buy machines. We we can support uh, the the customer in all the uh, all the kind of problem they they could have. I would imagine there's a lot of gelato companies now want to do some of the things that you've just started, like the um, lactose free and vegan. Are you able to help them go from the dairy side to to make different products? It's uh, the customer that uh, is asking us uh, to give uh, them the, the product. So um, we we starting produce uh, uh, this uh, this line uh, because uh, it was the, the customer uh, that nowadays uh, ask uh, this uh, kind of product. Are you seeing more companies coming to you to ask for vegan and lactose free? A lot, a lot of uh, companies are asking this uh, kind of uh, products. We can say that the, it is the, the fashion of the moment, and so the customer wants this type of uh, product. And where do you sell your products? Is it just in Italy or in other countries as well? We sell in, in Italy, but in uh, a lot of countries all over the world. New Zealand uh, to China, from the north of uh, Europe uh, to the south of uh, America. The the CJEP, how, how was that show? Was it a very good show this year for you? Yes, for, for us, CJEP is very, very important. Uh, every year we prepare uh, the, this fair very accurately because uh, it, it is a moment for us uh, very important in the year. We have the opportunity to meet uh, a lot of uh, people, a lot of uh, potential customers. It is uh, the, an opportunity to see the customer and say by phone, uh, you can see the product, uh, taste the product uh, and and obviously talk with us. So it, it is a very important opportunity for us. And... and now it's back to the UK for another in what has turned out to be some recent thought-provoking and forward-looking interviews. And this time it's a chat with Andrew Spicer, who is the CEO of Algenuity. And their motto is making algae work or algae, depending on how you pronounce it. My first degree was in plant biology many years ago, and half the lecturers called it algae, and the other half called them algae. So if they can't agree on it, what chance have I got? It's a fascinating subject, and even heads into that word disruptive again, because of the potential applications in so many areas. And as you'll hear, the company is developing all kinds of different colors as well. And, well, I'll let Andrew explain. 
Algenuity is an algal biotech company based in Bedfordshire. Um, we formed really late 2009, early 2010. It was just myself when I was taken on as a director of another company called Spicer Consulting Limited that was looking to innovate and diversify. And the directors in their wisdom at that time, 2009-ish, were looking at opportunities for the future and recognized algae as one of those possible opportunities. If, if, if somebody got some really good innovation in that area, there would be opportunities for business development. So I was tasked with, literally my brief was, do something with algae. After looking at it uh, broadly, uh, trying to avoid biofuels, which was, there's a lot of money going into biofuels, but a lot of suggestion that it was never going to go anywhere eventually, I realized two things. One was we needed to work with algae that already had a commercial route to market. In other words, they were already scalable and with an understood model in terms of how they were produced. And the second thing was that food was probably going to be a very big area uh, because algae had been eaten actually for centuries by various people groups globally and is known to be nutritious. But the one thing about the, the, those people groups that, eat, that have eaten algae over the centuries is generally it's been out of necessity where taste has not really been a, a consideration. It's just been known, known to be nutritious, a source of protein, etc. So those are the basics for, for what, what we founded Algenuity on. We wanted to get things to market. We wanted to have impact. And then we, we adopted our, our mantra, which is making algae work, of three simple words, which is to make the whole industry work and to make the organism work to actually meet specific market needs. We've been self-funded. We now have a team of nine scientists. We are incredibly innovative. We've been described as disruptive by a, a multinational in terms of what we're doing with algae. And, and what we've actually done is actually very, very simple. We've developed a range of algae based on chlorella vulgaris, which is a, a strain of algae that is approved for human consumption. It's high protein. So a lot of other, other nutritional benefits. But it hasn't been eaten that widely because it's green and tastes incredibly bitter because of the chlorophyll content. And so we've developed strains that are chlorophyll deficient, natural strains using methods that are very similar to accelerated plant breeding, so it's non-GMO. And we've now got this lovely palette of colors that has emerged with different strains, so yellows, oranges, uh, lime green, a white, a whole range of colors that can go into various food applications uh, and bring in plant-based protein, but also a natural source of pigments, healthy oils, uh, micronutrients. And so we've taken the barrier away. That's the green color and the bitter uh, taste or flavor associated with that high chlorophyll content um, and opened up the way to get algae as a higher, incorporated at a higher rate into foods. We're broadly across foods. We're now also looking at cosmetics because... Chlorella vulgaris is an approved ingredient for cosmetics as well. And again, where, green, where the green color and the, the smell or the taste or flavor or whatever else would, would be a barrier uh, to broad application. Um, and one of those areas that, that's emerging, of course, is the dairy area and also meat, alternative meats. And so, um, yes, we're getting a lot of interest in the food area. Of course, in terms of developing this to find the right species in the first place, was that a bit of a challenge because there are many different seaweeds and many different algae out there. Uh, how did you come across the right one? Well, so, so, there are, so chlorella vulgaris, so we're talking about microalgae. So microalgae in contrast to seaweeds. Seaweeds are macroalgae. Microalgae um, are sing generally single-cell organisms, so they're microscopic. 
Um, and so Chlorella vulgaris is a microalga. It's one of the smallest ones around. It can be found in most freshwater bodies of water. So uh, we knew that there were only a limited number of microalgae that were approved for human consumption. And Chlorella vulgaris is one of those that's been widely eaten and is approved. So it's, it was being eaten before 1997. So it's outside of what's called the novel foods regulations because it's considered to be, have a history of safe use it was being widely consumed. Spirulina also falls into that category. And so there's not that many algae that can be exploited in that way. The reason we like chlorella is chlorella is a very, very adaptable organism. It can be grown outdoors using sunlight and CO2 and nutrients, or it could be grown in a fermenter. And when it's grown in a fermenter, it grows to very high density uh, and grows on sugar in the dark. And so we, we knew that chlorella vulgaris had a big potential right from the beginning. And then uh, we had a sort of a happy accident. We were looking at my pond had turned green in my back garden. This was back in 2012, and my kids were bored one weekend. And we decided to figure out what, the, what had made the pond go green. And we discovered that it was Chlorella vulgaris that had made the pond go green. And I isolated our production organism from my pond in the back garden. And that's the organism from which all of our, all of our strains, all of our production strains have, have been derived, all the different colored strains. So it's a strain that's proprietary to us. It's from the Bedford area. We know it's provenance. It's as natural as you can get. Uh, but we've, we've upgraded it by removing the chlorophyll. So these are now stable strains that grow that way. They look like, they almost look like juice. They're such a lovely color, the range of colors we have. And so it's a good thing that you have a pond then. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It may, yeah, it's made us realize how widespread algae is and how accessible they are if you go, if you go looking for them. And, and I assume as well that obviously it will be a clean label product, which is something... That's Absolutely, yes. Yeah, so we've got clean label, we've got non-GM, yeah, we've got, you know, a, it's a gluten-free product, it will be a vegan product, there's been no testing ever on animals in terms of what we're working on. So uh, we're recognizing all of those opportunities that currently are really important attributes in terms of ingredients going into foods. And clearly it has multiple applications. You already mentioned the um, cosmetics as well as food, but even just within the, the relatively small niche that is dairy and dairy alternatives, its, it's potential is huge. Yes, I mean, within, I mean, within the dairy alternatives area, we've been approached by people doing cheeses because plant-based uh, proteins uh, for cheeses is a huge area. It's a huge emerging area. It's an area that's being now heavily invested in. Um, and effectively, we've got a source of plant-based protein in addition to fats, in addition to micronutrients, in addition to natural pigments, all of which can play a role in making something like a cheese. And so we're exploring that space. We've got interest from a number of companies in terms of exploring that space. Um, ice cream is another area, so non-dairy ice creams, as well as the protein, as well as the fat. We've also got a structuring component, so fiber from the cell wall can also play a role in giving you the right texture. And so we, we have interest in that area. Um, we are exploring ourselves, the area of sort of kefir and yogurts, because we've got a white chlorella. One of our strains is white. It actually grows almost, it almost looks like milk growing in a, <laughs> growing in a fermenter. So we've got a lot of opportunities to explore. It's a, it's a pretty wide open space at the moment, uh, but it's still, I would say it's still very early days. And, and of course, it's not just not just the different aspects that it can bring. You also mentioned the different colors, which also is... Absolutely, nice. yeah. So the other thing that's, that's really nice is that this is a whole cell-based ingredient. And so 
And because of the approval at the food level, you know, we've got a range of colours that can be grown fermented. They can be grown year-round, so it's not dependent upon harvests. It can be grown literally year-round. And they could go directly into smoothies, for instance, as a plant-based protein ingredient to bring in a natural source of colour as well as high protein. And by high protein, we're talking about 30 to 40% protein, similar amounts of protein that you get from a steak. Uh, the protein is, is high quality. We've got the amino acid profile. It covers all of the World Health Organization's food requirements for amino acids. And so we've got a pretty good ingredient here in terms of um, the things you'd like, the attributes you'd like to have for a food ingredient. Um, and so you don't have to have a green smoothie. An algae, an algal smoothie doesn't have to look green anymore. It can be nutritious and look like a mango smoothie or look like an orange smoothie. And in terms of scalability, uh, can you sort of talk me through how big the production facility is? And so at the moment, we're at pilot scale here in Bedfordshire. And so we're producing batches of, in the kilo range. And so this is produced by fermentation. But we are quite excited that we are already in quite advanced talks with a, with a production site here in the UK for commercial scale production. And it's an existing site which has capacity and our aggressive target for 2021 is that we will be going towards 1,000 tonnes of dry algae produced, which will very quickly make us the largest producer for chlorella on the planet. Our envisioned market size is going to be in the tens of thousands of tonnes for these ingredients as the market grows. To be able to say that in the UK we're going to be at 1,000 tonnes by the end of 2021 is a, it's a, it's an aggressive target, but we've got all the right things in place to get there. The plant is already there. There's already a good team in place. The tech transfer process is happening. Uh, we've got a really good understanding of scalability on, on our side. And so everything, everything is there to suggest that this is going to become a reality and we've got the market pull to make the whole thing happen. And because this is in a powdered form, obviously it has global scope. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're starting to look, as you, as you would, you, we're starting to look at additional sites because we can't just have one production site. If this were to really take off, we need to already start be, be thinking about additional sites. There are potential models and applications where a liquid form might be the right form to supply it in. For instance, if it's going to be re-wetted anyway when it goes to product formulation, then why are we going to the length uh, to dry it and all the energy requirements for that? So there could be applications where production of a wet form and, and supply of a wet form locally would be the preferred form, and that would be looking at a carbon footprint sustainability as well of, of that model. One of the big topics lately is sustainability and carbon footprints. And this Absolutely. Clearly, it would clearly tick all the boxes in terms of a very low carbon footprint. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're working through because we really need to know the numbers. And so we're doing one of the things for our deliverables for 2020 is, is a full life cycle assessment, which will look at not just carbon footprint, but will look at land utilization, water utilization, resources like phosphate, um, all the things that give you the, the overall picture of environmental impact uh, of what we're doing. And so that's really important to us so that we'll be transparent in that regard. And, and I know you can't name any names, obviously, but this is probably because of the your ability to do this relatively quickly. It's probably attracting quite a bit of attention, I would imagine. I, yeah, I, uh, at the moment we have interest from quite a number of multinationals. Um, we're quite excited to be working with companies who have a plan to get these ingredients into food products and on shelves. Yeah, we're, we're excited by what the future holds. 
the general model has been, I think, most large multinationals realize what the future looks like and realize that sustainability, realize that good for you and good for the environment are, are, are becoming more and more important in people's minds and that people do have choices. And those choices can be to start not eating as much, as much animal-based foods. I think that's what's driving a lot of this. It's not just a purely vegan agenda. It's an agenda that says, for the first time, I have a choice, and I have a choice in terms of the impact that my choice is going to be make, making uh, in terms of what I buy, what I choose to feed myself and my family. Part of that, I guess, is always going to be an economic aspect to things. Is this something that's going to be relatively cost-effective for companies? Um, I, I mean, we are, so, so obviously with anything that comes in initially, uh, our initial offering is going to be a little bit higher than, for instance, pea protein uh, or soy protein. There's, there's kind of a move away from soy, so pea protein is, is being adopted widely. So if you look at a purely protein-based source uh, of sort of competition, we're coming in a little bit more expensive than that, but we're on a drive, a continuous improvement cycle to come down in terms of our cost to the companies that will be supplying. But I think I would also argue that what, as an ingredient, what we're delivering is not just a protein play. We're bringing in flavor and color as well. So, um, I mean, that, that would substitute for a lot of the components that are going into the sort of the animal replacement. So, for instance, if you went into a meat, you could potentially be bringing in your protein, your, a flavor, and a color all in one, one ingredient as opposed to having to source that through multiple different ingredients. So the value of what we're delivering, I think, as, the, as well as the story, the sustainability side, it's the whole thing that we're delivering in one that we think delivers the value. But yes, I think economically, we're, we're coming and becoming in a, in a good price range. And we're not just talking about consumers wanting sustainable products. There's also the potential in the future for governments to start legislating on this kind of issue. I agree. I agree absolutely, and I think with uh, like the future, you know, the future of things like blockchain and, you know, and, and scoring of products based on where they've come from or where they're sourced from and their, car, their, their environmental impact, all of that's going to have a going to have an impact in the long run. I think we're future-proofing, uh, and uh, we, we, we come, we've got a technology that's going to be relevant very much in the future. And as you mentioned as well, the potential for transferring this to other plants. I mean, if you were to say North America or Asia, you would have the capacity to be able to produce this closer to the marketplaces. To absolutely, reduce. yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's even a model. I mean, you could even come up with a model. I mean, the farming is going to go through a revolution in the next 10 to 20 years. I mean, we're at a point where innovation is huge. And so, you know, locally sourced uh, has been known for a long time to be preferable. So why not have local production plants so that you reduce your carbon footprint and you supply locally? I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't do that and have that model. It's a different model than having a giant factory uh, that's then distributing a wide range, but there's no reason why we couldn't explore that in the long term. It's a model that can be adapted for any part of the planet, really. Uh, anywhere where you've got a little bit of land, you don't have to compete with arable land. You can put this on a brownfield site and have, have a factory. Um, you just need a source of water. Um, so it's the same sort of model as you'd, as you'd follow for that. Um, so you, you, you mean you have to have your land, you have to have energy, of course, to run the plant, and you have to have a source of carbon to feed the organism. And so at the moment, I guess you're just trying to get this to market in products. Um, I, yeah, we, that definitely, although we're continually innovating. We have new colors coming through. We've got some really exciting ones to announce this year. We're looking at digestibility and protein availability because a lot of these you know, plant-based proteins, it's, it's all going to come down to bioavailability. 
you know, it's great to have the plant-based source of protein, but if you can't nutritionally access it, that's an issue. And so we're looking at the digestibility of, of an algal biomass ingredient and looking at innovating in that way to have an improved protein availability. So we're always looking at ways we can improve um, and also looking at ways we can improve the carbon footprint of the process, the energy intensity of the process. So if we can lower that, and again, we've got an, an, an improved ingredient. So even though we know we've, we've already got things that can go straight into foods, there's always a way of improving, uh, both um, you know, nutritionally and also for the um, sort of carbon intensity or carbon footprint of the process. Obviously not naming names of any companies, but are you already starting to trial this in food products? Yes, there's already been some applications development, which has been very encouraging, uh, which is just increasing the level of excitement. The realization that this is, these are ingredients that will, become, will be broadly applicable across multiple food platforms. And so you'll be seeing algae as an ingredient in a lot of different foods. And the most the cool thing from our perspective is those foods won't normally be green. I think most of the products that you think of, is particularly for chlorella and spirulina, when you think of uh, the, with spirulina, there's a lot of blue drinks coming out with phycocyanin, which is the blue pigment in spirulina. But overwhelmingly, if you put algae into pastas and things like that, you end up with a green pasta. And so then the market has been a very much a niche market. And where we want to see this go is this is going to go a broad mainstream market. So you're going to have normal foods that you would normally, normally eat. They won't be green. They'll be nutritious, but algae will be one of the ingredients. And it's just going to slot in as a plant-based source of a, of a really healthy, nutritious ingredient, which also brings some function to the product, whether it be emulsifying, whether it be binding, a range of different applications. Which I guess begs the question, when should we start to see products coming out with this ingredient in them? I can't give a formal uh, date, but I can't imagine it's going to be more than two years before these things will be on the shelf. It could be an 18-month horizon it could go faster. The, the beauty of these ingredients is that, as I said, there's no barriers to application in Europe. They can go straight into foods. So if function is demonstrated and the scale is there, then as soon as we can supply the required volumes, which will be next year, early next year, um, I can see this going into, into foods and probably sometime around the end of 2021, you should see foods uh, emerging, potentially a little bit earlier than that. That would be my guess. And now it's off to Dublin to get the latest update on the global dairy markets with INTL FC Stone's Charlie Highland. Hi Jim. Well, um, this week, a little bit of a continuation on from last week. Um, obviously, the last week, the big news was the GDT and the uh, concern, I guess, over the, the coronavirus and what impact that was having on dairy markets. And, and that's certainly, that's still the case this week. Um, this, you know, continual continually a lot of questions over long term what kind of impact or medium term even what kind of impact this is going to have on demand and as of, as of yet the market is uh, has been reasonably calm the back middle of this week there has been a bit more pressure with some concerns over the demand um, weakening a little bit further uh, as a result of this so prices are slightly down on the week uh, nothing too dramatic um, but we're down about uh, 25 30 euros per ton on skim milk powder and similar on butter but all in all, still reasonably stable markets. Great. Thanks, Charlie. We'll talk to either you or Liam again next week. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. 
And that's us done for another Dairy Dialogue. I will check the numbers on the webinar registration before next time to see if anyone has actually registered. Not that I'll admit it if no one has. On next week's show, I will have six interviews to choose from, but I won't say which three now just in case I change my mind. If I had a mind to change, I would have already swapped it for a better one. But we do have plenty of interviews in the pipeline, which is great. We might even end up with the podcast lasting an hour eventually. Who knows? How would you cope? Probably with the use of fast forward to cut me out. So I managed to say disruptive again in the podcast. I didn't mention Valentine's Day, which is Friday, in case you've forgotten, which I had until it just popped into my head. So hopefully you have a great rest of the week and Valentine's Day and weekend, and we will catch up with you again next Wednesday. So take care, and of course, thanks for listening. 